Grab a seat if you're going to stay. That's loud. It doesn't. You actually listen to these later? Oh, boy. You're about the only one. Okay. Can I? Do you have? Yeah, exactly. Thank you. Oh, here you go. That's all right. Martha's got extra. Okay, let's pray. You're welcome. Let's pray and let's, uh, let's get started. Great prayer by Luther um, at the end of the service. A little longer, but that's always nice. Let's pray. Behold, Lord, an empty vessel that needs to be filled. My Lord, fill it. I am weak in the faith. Strengthen me. I am cold in love. Warm me and make me fervent, that my love may go out to my neighbor. I do not have a strong and firm faith. At times I doubt and am unable to trust you altogether. O Lord, help me. Strengthen my faith and trust in you. In you I have sealed the treasure of all I have. I am poor. You are rich and came to be merciful to the poor. I am a sinner. You are upright. With me there is an abundance of sin. In you is the fullness of righteousness. Therefore, I will remain with you, of whom I can receive, but to whom I may not give. Through Jesus Christ our Lord. Amen. It's a man who knows how to pray. That's good. Um, Okay, everybody should have a handout. Um, I hope you all brought Bibles. If you didn't, bring it next week, because we will go um, kind of verse by verse through a number of things. Um, What we'd like to do the next couple weeks, and I don't quite know how long it's going to take, but probably you know, at least two weeks, maybe a few more, um, we'd like to discuss in particular the office of the ministry. And I know some of you grew up, you know, Lutheran, and this makes complete sense to you. Some of, some of you grew up Lutheran, and it doesn't make sense to you. And some of you didn't grow up Lutheran, and you're interested to hear what we have to say. Um, but, but I think it's very important. If I, had to, if I had to diagnose or pinpoint one problem with Lutherans today because we haven't quite figured something out, it would be that we haven't figured out the office of the ministry. So um, why are we talking about this? Because some of you have said, you know, we've talked about it before. Uh, We're talking about it first because Pastor Bruzek has talked about very helpfully finding your spot and working your spot. And I think it's important to know as we go forward what your spot is, that's what we've talked about for four or five weeks now, and what my spot is. And then I can help you work your spot, and hopefully you can help me work my spot. So partly this is knowing what my spot is, what Pastor Bruzek's spot is, and what Pastor Nelson's spot is. Um, As I said, this is probably also the most misunderstood aspect of the church, at least today. Um, So we want to clarify a few things. Thirdly, um, this is one thing that AOR suggested we talk about. Um, And I don't want to, you know, I said in the sermon, you know, let go of past hurts. So we need to sort of move on. At the same time, uh, we need to move on and be cognizant of what occurred in the past and how we can get better in the future. So... One thing they said was, gosh, pastors are here. Um, Pastors have a lot of responsibility. Their authority doesn't quite match their responsibility. You need to talk to the congregation about this. So partly it's fulfilling all righteousness there. And fourthly, and most importantly, it's so we can be the kind of congregation that Christ wants. Okay? So we can talk about a lot of things. If it's not for the greater good of Christ and his church, it doesn't matter. So... um, you know, it's always difficult when a pastor talks about being a pastor. It'd be nice if one of you said, I know all about being a pastor because I've seen it, and I'll talk about it. Um, but I drew the short straw, so I will... That was a joke. <laughs> so I will talk about it, okay? Um, 
we'll take the next couple weeks. What I, but I, I want to be, and I want to be very clear here. In everything I give you, um, nothing that I give you will come from a source other than the Bible or the Lutheran confessions. Okay, so I'm not going to quote church fathers. I'm not going to quote anybody else. Everything I've given you is from scripture and the confessions. So that hopefully when you leave, and I want to say this straight away, some of you may disagree, um, and that's fine. My response to you in many instances, and please take this as kindness and not as a fight, I'm just telling you what Lutherans believe. Okay? I'm just telling you what the scriptures say, and I'm just telling you what Lutherans believe. And if you disagree with that, God bless you. We need to work it out. But your beef is not with me. I'm just the deliverer. Okay? So, um, but please, if you didn't bring a Bible, bring a Bible next week because lots of this will be right from Scripture. I think I counted, you know, 20 or 30 texts from Scripture I've included in here. We're not going to look at all of them, obviously, but we will look at some. The other thing is, just so you know, stop me along the way. I want to go very slowly, and I want to get, you know, a head nod at each point at the very least. At best, I'd love you to all say, yes, we get it, let's keep moving. Um, And if you begin to push me, that's a good sign. But to start, I'd like to go very slowly and just make sure you understand where we're going. I'm going to start with Scripture, because Scripture trumps the Lutheran confessions. Um, And then I'll go to the confessions, because that's how we clarify some points of Scripture that maybe are misunderstood. Um, And then we'll go to sort of practical life together. That makes sense? Okay, good. So let me ask you, yes. Oh, I'm sorry. Oh, oh, oh. Number one rule of being a pastor, listen to the outreach board. Very sorry. This goes to Ghana. Yes, and you should have sign-in sheets as well. I'm sorry. Um, let me ask this question to start. I once asked somebody this, and they gave me a blank stare, um, and that made me realize that maybe we don't understand it. Um, what makes a pastor successful? In your own mind, in your own heart, in your own words, what makes a pastor successful? What would you say? Okay. <laughs> Yes, okay, being pastoral. <laughs> My language arts teachers used to say, you can't use the word I've asked you in your answer. Uh, okay, good, we need to talk about that. So, good, so those are all, uh, now you're being very Lutheran, and I didn't expect that to start. Uh, he said, I'm sorry, he said being pastoral, it means ministering to your people and loving your people. That's good. Those are all, I mean, Those are all ideals. Those are exactly what we want to do. At the same time, I realize that's not always the case. So loving your people, what does it mean to love your people? Okay, good. So did you all hear that? I'll, I'll kind of reiterate for you. Basically what he said was, the best thing you can do, the way you love people most, is to give them Jesus um, and to not give them Josh Gainick. Okay? I mean, I can give you a lot, but I can't give you what the Lord can give you. And there are some things for which I can't give you anything. Um, I often say to couples who come in for premarital advice, they say, well, what happens when he doesn't take the trash out? And I say, i got enough problems of my own. <laughs> I mean, I can tell you what the Lord says about marriage. I can't tell you about taking the trash out. You've got to talk to somebody who's good at that. Okay? So you're exactly right. My job, and I think, it, and I think that's actually a great way to start, it's very easy to say love your people. Um, it's very me- easy for me to say love your kids, but what does that mean? So my way of loving you 
The best way I can love you is to give you what Jesus gives and to say to you what Jesus says. You remember when Jesus sends out the apostles um, and the words he uses when he says, you know, go forgive sins, go retain sins. The word there is homo legeo. Homo, same, legeo, words. So the job of the apostle, and we'll see the job of a pastor, is to say the same thing as Jesus. Now, do you ever disagree with Jesus? Yeah, you better. <laughs> you better, or you're not telling the truth. <laughs> okay? I once had someone say, I never disagree with Jesus, and I just started laughing. I'm like, how could you not? Jesus says to do a lot of things that we don't like to do. But my job, and Pastor Bruzik's job, and Pastor Nelson's job, is to say what Jesus says um, so that you end up better off than you were before you spoke with us. Okay? Good. So loving, ministering to people, that means going to see them, seeing them when they come to you, delivering what Jesus says, delivering what Jesus gives. What else? What else makes a pastor successful? Yeah. Good. So interpreting it accurately. Um, that's good. Because there are some, some of you have jobs where you have to interpret codes. And I mean, you're a mathematician. There are some formulas I don't know. So I go to a mathematician and you say, here's how the formulas work. Um, it's the same thing in the church. You come to me because the formulas within scripture, here's how you get saved, here's how you go to heaven, here's how you live the Christian life, can be very difficult to sort of decipher. Okay? Good. So find the expert. Yeah, Jack? I think that the Right. That's right. And I, uh, what he said was to make disciples. And, I, and that's very different. And I, I mentioned it in the sermon this morning. I mean, let's be realistic. Anyone can get to heaven. Heaven's open to everybody. Um, and anyone can come to church. But it's a very different thing to be a faithful disciple. So I, I said to someone before the service, I'd like to poll the class and ask them how many are afraid they're going to hell. Now, don't raise your hands. But my guess is if I said to you, how many of you think you're going to hell? If there are a few of you, it's because you've got something you're working through. My guess is there are zero of you who say, I'm going to hell. So let's take that off the table. My job is not to convince you you're going to heaven. The Lord does that over and over and over again. My job is to move you through the Christian life. Okay? And again, that can be painful. That can be tough, and it can be very joyous and very glorious. What else? What makes a pastor successful? Some of you in the back. There are lots of young folks back there. It makes me nervous. But some of you, who? what makes a pastor successful? Yes, John. You have to know the time that's right to encourage and the time that's right to admonish um, behavior or, or things that happen with those that you care for. Good. Yeah, it's, it's like being a parent. You have to know when to encourage and when to admonish. I mean, if you only encouraged your kids, what would happen? They'd destroy you. <laughs> and if you only admonish, they'd grow up with no self-esteem. So it's a, it's a balance of both. There are some times when you say, that's not best for you, and there are some times when you say, great job, keep going. And think about your own kids. I mean, if you truly understand what it means to be a parent, what you know is you don't admonish your kids because it's fun. I mean, how many of you love yelling at your kids? Yeah, exactly, okay? It's the same thing in the church. You don't tell people that's not best for you because I think that's fun. Um, you tell them that because this is a matter of life and death, okay? What else? What makes a pastor successful? Anything else? Yeah, Dan. You talked about or mentioned what the pastor would do for the congregation. I think you say they're not, uh, not more so. The congregation is closer to God. 
Yeah, that would be helpful. Um, it, it is, no, and I don't, sorry, that didn't sound right. What I meant was, in an ideal world, that would be helpful. What he said was a congregation support, should support its pastors. Yes, that's right. Um, here's the thing, pastors do stupid things, um, me included. Um, and oftentimes pastors do very stupid things that get them on the congregation's bad side. At the same time, lots of pastors are very faithful and don't have the support of their congregation because what happens? Congregations misinterpret um, nudging and pushing for, he doesn't like me, he wants to tell me what to do, he expects me to obey him, right? So it's, it's sort of redefining our terms and redefining our own perspectives. Hence, Pastor Bruzek, finding your spot and working your spot. What else? Anything else? Yes. Yes, exactly. So what'll happen? So a successful pastor trains others to be trainers of others, and what? And we'll talk about this probably next time. Um, I actually have it in two separate handouts because I was afraid you'd go home and read ahead and then misinterpret everything I gave you. So I'm going to give you this next week. But in this, I talk about two different types of churching. There's churching the church. My job is to church all of you. But there's also churching the world, which that's not my job. That's your job. So I church the church so that you can church the world. And we have to remember those perspectives. At the same time, I don't go out and tell you how to talk to your neighbor necessarily, and you don't tell me how to talk to all of you in the church. So we have to remember our boundaries and remember what we do. But at the exact same time, it's about training other people up for faithful service. Anything else? Okay, look at your, yes, go ahead. Good. So thinking of ways to engage other people. Um, and that doesn't always mean that I do it or Pastor Bruzek does it or Pastor Nelson does it, but empowering people to go and do that for themselves, right? Because I can't be everywhere, um, and neither can you. But if we all find our own spots, we might be able to collectively be everywhere, right? Okay. So look at your handout. I want to just run you through, and again, you know, slowly and prayerfully and deliberately, I want to run you through sort of the history of the office of the ministry in the Bible. Um, I think oftentimes we think the ministry is, you know, a, a, an invention of the modern age, or, you know, at best it's an invention of Timothy and, and St. Paul. As we'll see, the ministry actually goes all the way back to Eden, okay? So when we talk about the office of the ministry, this is something people have been talking about for, you know, five, six, seven thousand years. Who knows how long, okay? So uh, if you look there... The Office of the Holy Ministry, Biblical and Confessional Considerations. So, Biblical. It's always best to put, start with the Bible. Adam. Now, let's just go slowly here. If you, in fact, if you have a Bible, open it up to Genesis chapter 2. Go to Genesis chapter 2, verse 15. And keep your Bible open, because I'm just going to pick on you if you got a Bible, um, to go and read some other stuff for us. Genesis 2.15. Somebody have that? Yeah, go ahead. Why don't you read that for us? Then the Lord God took the man and put him into the garden Eden to cultivate it and keep it. Good. He took the man, put him in the garden of Eden to, go, to cultivate it and keep it. So he creates Adam. 
He creates Eve from Adam's side, and that's a very important image. We'll talk about that. And then what does he do with Adam? So Adam is over here in the garden, or Adam is someplace, and what does he do with Adam? He takes him and he, he puts him. Who does the verbs? The Lord does the verbs. That's very important. This is the Lord's idea, not Adam's idea. So Adam is created. Adam sees his bride. Ooh, Eve, that's great. Bone of my bone, flesh of my flesh. Isn't this going to be wonderful? And then the Lord says, wait, wait, wait. I didn't create you just to be created. I created you to do some work for me, hence the Christian life. So he takes Adam, he picks him up, and he puts him in the garden. He does the verbs. And his two jobs, two verbs there are, to work it, you see this on your handout, literally to serve the garden, and to keep it, literally to guard the garden, to work the garden and to guard the garden. And for this reason, and I have this on the outline here, Luther called Eden Adam's temple. Luther called Eden Adam's temple, Adam's church. Within Eden, that's his church, what do you think the altar is? What's the altar? The tree of life. And that's why you sing this great hymn by Starkey, the tree of life. So here, here's the first stanza and the last. The tree of life with every good in Eden's holy orchard stood. And of its fruits so pure and sweet, God let the man and woman eat. And then it goes on to say, but there was another tree. But then the last stanza. Now from the tree of Jesus' shame flows life eternal in his name. For all who trust and will believe, salvation living fruit receive. And of this fruit so pure and sweet, the Lord invites the world to eat, to find within the cross of wood the tree of life with every good. So the tree of life is a picture of what tree later to come in Jesus' life? The tree of the cross. And what's the fruit of the tree of the cross? His Jesus, in particular. Body and blood. Okay? So the tree in the garden is Adam's altar. Adam's the pastor. Adam stands at the tree of life, and he ministers to his bride, Eve. And, and he would have ministered then to the rest of his family, but as you know, everything goes to hell in a handbag, right? He gets tossed out. But Adam was the priest who presided over the cosmic Eucharist. He presided over the tree from which God gave his, gave his gifts to all creation. That was Adam's job. Does that make sense? And I'll show you this. I'll show you this connection in the Old Testament priest in just a minute. But his job is to guard it and to serve it. To guard the garden, to serve the garden, to work it, to keep it. And how did he get there? The Lord picked him up and he put him there. Okay? Yes? Oh, yeah. And beyond our own efforts. Right. Because all Adam is doing is creating a situation where the earth can give life and produce. Exactly right. Yeah, Adam's job is to bring life from life. He's been given life. His job is to cultivate the land and bring more life. And he doesn't know, you know, tenfold, a hundredfold, five hundredfold, how much this is going to happen. Okay? Now, that's the easy one because there's no sin, so there's nothing to argue about, right? Yes, Marilyn. But it's not Adam's responsibility or decision to bring these things forward. Yeah. Here's the thing. At some point, 
This is what the Lutheran confessions say when they say um, the Holy Spirit works when and where he wills. At some point, all of us, you and me included, have to step out of the way and say the Lord's going to take care of this. My job is just to do what he says. The great Martin Franzman hymn for pastors, Preach the Word, says, The sower sows, his heart cries out, Oh, what of that? Oh, what of that? The sower sows the seed, and the sower doesn't worry about what seed sticks. He just worries about sowing the seed. Okay? So, that's the easy one. Any questions? Everybody give me a big head nod if you're okay. Okay, good. Pastor, you okay? Perfect. Okay, yes, you have a question? Uh, yes, Eve's job, well, um, Eve's job is certainly to be a helpmate, but she's not the priest who presides at the sacrament just by virtue of the order of creation. And we'll see this again then in Ephesians 5. Um, Eve's job is very important. Eve's job is to help Adam. But at the end of the day, you know that if everybody is equal, what happens? Chaos. <laughs> What's the first thing the Lord does in Genesis 1? He orders the chaos. So there's no way, and you know what, that the Lord is going to order the chaos and then put two people in there who are going to fight over being first. It's just not going to happen. Because then he'd actually go against his nature. God's nature is order. God's nature is gift. And that's what he does with Adam and Eve. We'll see it again in Ephesians 5. Okay. Now, this is where it gets fun. Look at point B. Old Testament priests. Now, we don't think a lot about Old Testament priests, but actually they are our predecessors. And their churches are our churches. So, throughout Numbers 3 to 4, the priests are commanded to do two things. Guess what they are? Lo and behold, priests in the Old Testament are commanded to do two things. Guard and keep, and serve and work. Guess what those, where those exact two same verbs were used previously? In the Garden of Eden, of Adam, the first priest. The exact same thing the Lord says to Adam. Guard and work, serve and keep, are precisely the same things the Lord tells the Old Testament priests to do. Okay? See this? This is how you know Adam's the first priest. The job of an Old Testament priest was to guard or keep the tabernacle and its furnishings, make sure nobody took the stuff, and to serve or work at the tabernacle, to offer sacrifices, to offer prayers, to minister to people, to love people. In Numbers 18, 1-7, Priests are also charged to guard and serve in their respective parts of the sanctuary. Some at the high altar, some with the incense, some with the bread of the presence, but all of them to guard and to serve. To that end, and I hope you see this connection, the Old Testament tabernacle and temple were built in imitation of Eden. And the priests of the Old Testament were to act in imitation of Adam the proto-priest, the first priest. So if you're an Old Testament priest, where did you learn your skills? Adam. And you see this carried out even into the New Testament. You remember, and you know, this is a fun discussion for another time, I'll give you the gist of it. You remember when they baptized people in the early church, 200, 300, 400 AD, they'd walk into a big room called the baptistry, which was sort of off to the side of a church or in the back of a church, and do you remember what it looked like when they would walk in? Say that again? It was octagonal, yeah, but what was all around? What did it look like and feel like and smell like? Yeah, murals of paradise. It was warm. I mean, Eden wasn't cold, we don't think. It was warm. It was comfortable. It smelled nice. You could smell oil. They built these, old, they built these uh, baptistries 
to look like Eden. Why? Because we are children of Adam and Eve. We're going back to Eden. And if you're going back to Eden, then I'm going back to Eden. You're the children, and I go back to Eden, just like Adam did. So the job of an Old Testament priest was to do precisely what Adam did. Why was he to do that? Because his job was to take people back to Eden. Okay? I once, had a, I once had a woman walk out, and she said after the sermon, she's not a member, so it's none of you. Uh, she said after the sermon, finally, you preached a sermon where you didn't talk about going back to Eden. I said, what do you mean? She said, we're not going back to Eden. Really? Just look at the text. Where we're going is back to Eden. In fact, it's going to be better than Eden. Okay? That makes sense? You're scaring me because you're all nodding too much. I was hoping there'd be more disagreement at this point. These are easy ones, though. It gets dicey when we get to the 12 apostles and when you get to pastors for today. Okay? Serve and keep exactly what Adam did, proto-priest. And remember, now this could create some discussion, remember, point one there, Adam, as the first priest, as proto-priest, was given dominion over all creation. It says this in Genesis 2. In Eden, there was no distinction between sacred and secular. Everything from divine worship to the management of the garden, that's why he says guard and keep, belonged to Adam. And the same really was true for the Old Testament priests. There was never a time where the Old Testament priests said, oh man, the roof is leaking, now we need to go talk to our board of trustees. <laughs> right? Everything was considered sacred. So there wasn't even a distinction between sacred and secular. Now, were there worldly things? Yeah, there were. Did they creep into the church? Yeah, they did. But in its purest form, the church was intended to always be sacred. Why? It was intended to imitate Eden. Adam's job is to serve and to guard, to watch out for the garden and to serve at the tree of life. The Old Testament priest's job is to serve the people and to guard, to have watch over the whole tabernacle, the whole temple. Now we have to see whether or not that carries into the New Testament. Jesus, this should be easy too. Jesus is the priest par excellence, right? Yeah, good. He stands firm where Adam fell. If you don't believe me, read Luke chapter 1, or chapter 4, 1 to 11, where he gets tempted. Every temptation matches Adam's. Adam falls, Jesus stands strong. Jesus offers a more perfect sacrifice than his priestly predecessors of the Old Testament. Read Hebrews 12. He offers a sacrifice that speaks a word louder than the blood of Abel. Precisely because Jesus offers himself. His ministry, this is Jesus, is to bring to fruition a new covenant. Remember the, the night of his betrayal? One that flows from his own sacred flesh. And so Jesus' life from beginning to end is one long divine service. It's a 33-year-long divine service. That's his job, over which he as priest presides. And then as the great Lenten hymn declares, he, Jesus, is himself the victim, and the priest. Okay? So Jesus brings to fulfillment everything that Adam was intended to be but wasn't, everything that the Old Testament priests were intended to be but couldn't. He brings that all to fruition in his own body. And so now whatever Jesus does with his apostles and what his apostles do with other pastors goes for the rest of time. Okay? Jesus is right here in the middle. 
Let's see, which way am I looking? Okay, so Jesus is right here. The Old Testament is back that way. Jesus makes perfect everything back there. And at the same time, he makes perfect everything going forward. What happens here with Jesus goes in both directions. I feel like I'm directing a plane. Coming in. I could do that part-time. Work at Southwest. Bags fly free, right? Y'all okay? Okay, good. Pastor, I feel like we're going too fast here. <laughs> what's that what's that musical? We did it here once, you got trouble in River City? Trouble with a capital T? Yeah, it's coming. What's that? Oh <laughs> Okay. The twelve apostles. The twelve apostles. Apostles, you know, literally means apostolos is a sent one. And if you're sent, is that an active or a passive verb? Passive. Like when Bruzik says, Can you go get me some lunch? passive verb. <laughs> it's funny, I expected the young people in the back to laugh a little more at that. <laughs> apostles, sent ones. Now these 12 apostles, as it says there, are incorporated into the ministry of Jesus. When Jesus ordains his apostles, he doesn't say, hey, let's start a new ministry. You know, I was a Lutheran and now you can be a Baptist. Um, what Jesus says is, I've got a ministry, and I'm going to put you into it. We'll see it in 1 Timothy, which should sound strikingly similar to whom? Who was put someplace to have ministry? Adam. See how this all makes sense? So, the 12 sent ones are incorporated into the ministry of Jesus. This divine office, the office of the ministry, it's not a normal office. It's a divine office is bestowed upon them on the night of Jesus' own resurrection. Somebody open up John chapter 20. John chapter 20, 19 to 23. If you got it there, raise your hand and you can read. Thank you. Okay, let's start at the very beginning with the timeline. When does this happen? After his resurrection, the night of his resurrection, on what day of the week? The eighth day. And you know that the number eight signifies what? More than completeness. Keep going. New creation, New creation good. Now you're using all the Arthur Just words. Use Josh Gainick words. <laughs> Eternity, keep, yes, good. So the number eight signifies, the number eight is a number that will have no end. So whatever Jesus does on the day number, on day number eight, will never stop, okay? Whatever Jesus does on day number eight will never stop. So that's very significant. He doesn't do this on the second day, on the third day, on the fifth day, on the seventh day. He does it on the eighth day. So his ordination of his apostles, that is a job that will carry on through the rest of time. How does he do it? How does he ordain his apostles? He breathes on them. Hopefully he had an altoid before that. I mean, he just come out of the tomb after three days. Come on. Breathes on his apostles. But he doesn't have breath. What's that? He doesn't have perfect breath? I don't know. Someone once preached a sermon, no lie, on how Jesus had halitosis after the resurrection. Uh, yeah, that's, that's how low people stoop every once in a while. So he breathes on his apostles, and in his breathing, what does he do? He delivers the Holy Spirit. Now, who does that remind you of? What happened in Eden? He formed man out of the dust, and he breathed into him the breath of life. He breathed into Adam the breath of life. 
He ordains his apostles with a spirity word and the laying on of divine breath. And in being ordained by Jesus and sent out to do his will, they are tasked with a specific mission. And he says this right in the upper room. Forgive and retain sins. On the night of their ordination, the one thing Jesus says is, go out, you have my spirit, you have my peace, you're a priest just like Adam, you're a priest just like the Old Testament priest, but now you come in succession to me, the one who is victim and priest. And he says to them, go out and do two things, forgive and retain sins. Forgive and retain sins. Yes. You mean sinners? Yeah. The question is, how are sins retained? Let me tell you this: sins are very rarely retained. The only way you can keep your the only way your sins are retained is if you're going to keep them. Yeah, you're getting forgiven all over the place. <laughs> That's good. I hadn't heard that one before. Uh, I'll write it down for later. That was good. No, um, how do sins get retained? The only way they're going to be retained is if you decide to keep them, um, but that's up to you and the Lord. And you're exactly right. People all the time, um, remember when Matt Harrison was here to preach about five years ago? Remember that? And he came, he, he preached a very good sermon on how you come to the altar with an empty sack. Remember this? And what does the Lord do? The Lord fills up your sack, and then what do you do? You go out and you sin and empty it, and sometimes you use it for good things. That's how it is all the time. You come to the altar, you're forgiven, you go back out, and we trust that you're probably going to sin again. That's the way it works. But there's a difference between, um, and this is what you're getting at, there's a difference between falling into the same sin over and over again and intentionally committing the same sin over and over again. Okay? Um, some people don't have the strength to stay strong. Sometimes you hear the same sins over and over. Welcome to my world as pastor. You're exactly right. His, his comment was, people oftentimes come to the altar, at least he thinks, they're forgiven, and they don't necessarily go out and actually believe that they have to somehow now work toward living a more perfect life. That's exactly right. Um, and that's exactly how it was in the early church. This is nothing new for the apostles either. Yes, Dave. Yeah, I mean, uh, a repentance does come in. Unfortunately, we can talk a lot about uh, repenting and having your sins forgiven. I want to talk more about the ministry. But it is true, um, people do have to turn around and receive the gifts. So, yes, Dennis. Yeah, okay, so two things. Uh, first of all, if you look up the same text in Matthew 18, and it's almost identical, what he says to the apostles. Um, you don't get it from the English, but it's certainly there in the Greek. The verb form there, 
You should all write this down. This will be for your quiz later. The verb form is a periphrastic future perfect. Got that? No. Green Bay Packers, way to go. Periphrastic future perfect. Now, that makes no sense to any of us. Here's what it means. What it means is when Jesus says, whatever sins you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven, whatever sins you loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. That's exactly what he says here, just with different words. The verb is first and foremost done by God in heaven. You don't get that from the English. You read that and you read this text and think, who's making the decision whether or not you get forgiven? Me or the apostles. Guess what? In the Greek, the way it's worded is, whatever you bind on earth shall have already been bound in heaven. Whatever you loose on earth shall have already been loosed in heaven. This gets back to my original point. The job of an apostle is to say the same thing as Jesus, homologeno. So when the Lord forgives your sins, my job is to announce forgiveness to you. When the Lord doesn't forgive your sins, my job is to announce he doesn't forgive them. How do I know he hasn't forgiven them? You come into confession and say, I don't really feel bad about this at all. So, so the mark of that is you have no repentance. But that's a very different thing, and this is what I was trying to say to George, that's a very different thing than coming in over and over and over again and struggling with the same sin. Struggling is different than unrepentance. Unrepentance is, I did it, I don't feel bad about it, and I'm not going to change. You say that to me, what am I supposed to say? Sorry. I mean, we got to work on this. You come in to me and say, Pastor, I've done the same thing every day. I cannot stop myself. You know what I say? I forgive you all your sins. And the default, and this is for the apostles too, the default is always to do what? Forgive or retain? Forgive, yeah. Better to err on the side of forgiving than to err on the side of retaining. Yes. Yes, yes, yeah. The point he made is if... Um, if my job is to speak for Jesus, and I say to you at some point, that's not best for you, that's a sin, and someone says, no, that's not a sin, um, that's a point where that sin can't be forgiven. Why? It hasn't been acknowledged. It's like when people say, um, you know, I got pain all over my body, but I'm not going to the doctor. I know it's not cancer. You say, no, really, you should go to the doctor. No, I'm not going to the doctor. What happens? They usually don't get well. So it's the same sort of thing. This is why I said to the women on Friday, pastors traditionally were called physicians of the soul. Yes, Peter. So after Jesus um, appoints his 12 apostles, he never specifically says to them, now when you're getting old, this is what I want you to do to perpetuate this mm -hmm. I had a pastor from Sweden in my ordination who bears apostolic succession. Shoulder to respect, Peter. <laughs> Joking. I do actually have a pastor there, but you don't need to show any more respect. You're a very respectful guy. Uh, yeah. I'm gonna get. Yeah, I'm gonna get to this next week. Yeah. Yes, exactly right. So there are two things that happen. One is, you remember Jesus says to the apostles in John 20. As the Father has sent me, even so I send you. 
And there's this idea that the sending carries on. It doesn't, there's not a period at the end of that. Okay? The other thing is you also see Paul say, um, you know, hey, this guy's set for the ministry. And then he says to St. Timothy, stir up the gift that was given to you through the laying on of hands. So what happens is in the upper room, how does Jesus give the gift? But obviously Jesus isn't around to breathe on people. So what happens? The next best thing, put your hands on their head. We're going to look at all this. I mean, this is why this could be five, six weeks. I want to look at the ordination rite. I want to look at everything. Um, but yes, there is actually a place where it's carried on. And I also would, I would want to discuss a little more. There may not be apostolic succession um, in the way of ecclesiology. And what I mean by that is that I can trace my ordination back to St. Peter. However, there is apostolic succession evangelically, which means the message of Peter is carried on throughout the church. And it's only when people step outside the message of St. Peter and ultimately of Jesus that things go wrong. Look at the churches today that, that have lots of problems. What have they done? They've given up on what was given to Peter, given to the apostles, and given to the pastors. What are those things? Office of the ministry, right? I mean, talk to pastors in this area, evangelicals. How many have been ordained? Probably a third, right? That's important. That's important because that's how Jesus gives the gift. They don't have the Eucharist. You know, what does he say to Peter? Feed my sheep. They don't have baptism, right? They don't have all these things. And those are marks that people have gone outside of apostolic tradition. Okay? We need to talk about all that. And I don't want to get too far ahead because then you're going to get jumbled up. Yeah? Yes. Yes, it speaks to the authority of tradition. It speaks to the authority of the ministry and ultimately to the authority of Jesus. I'll tell you this next week, but there is a point. Uh, well, you know, I'm going to save it. I want to save it for next week because we're running out of time. People are coming in. Next week, please come back. Um, I just want you to know I actually value this. This shouldn't be a lecture like I'm telling you this stuff. I hope this can be more of a dialogue, a little back and forth, but also charitably and kindly. And that's been very nice today. So uh, come back next week. Bring your sheets. I'll make some more copies, and we will carry on, okay? Lord, remember us in your kingdom and teach us to pray. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done, on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread, and forgive us our trespasses, as we forgive those who trespass against us. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom, and the power, and the glory, forever and ever. Amen. Okay, thank you.